This morning, we're going to spend some time in God's Word together. Very glad to see you today. I want to start in a passage that's uh, related to what I'd like to share with you today, but one that's also just pressing on my heart. It's uh, John 16, in the very last two verses of John 16. Here in this uh, section of John 13, 14, 15, all the way into verse or chapter 17, Jesus is speaking to his disciples just before his crucifixion. And uh, I always think that these are just fascinating words, not only because our Lord spoke them, but in the context of what he knew was about to happen. He's speaking to his disciples and, and knowing exactly what they will experience within hours of these words being said, he will be arrested in the garden. He will be put on trial. He will be crucified. And how that will impact these disciples who have been with him for some three years, who have learned to trust him and follow him and had aspirations that he would become the king of Israel, that he would take his rightful throne and, and they would get to reign with him. And, and that's unraveling very quickly at this moment as he shares with them the fact that he's going away and they don't understand that. Uh, they wanted to go too, remember. Uh, even one of them said, show us the way and we'll go there with you. And as he's sharing with them these words, knowing that when he is arrested, his disciples will scatter. And how they will deal with a very painful thing of seeing their, their, their Savior die. These are the words that Jesus said in John 16, verse 32 and 33. Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come, for you to be scattered each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet, I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, so that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. There's a Greek word for tribulation. There's several that can choose, but one of the uh, favorites, I believe, of the Apostle Paul, the word philipsis. It's kind of a fun word to say, philipsis, because it has a lot of letters in there and very few vowels. <laughs> but uh, in the nature of it, you can picture a vice. I grew up among vices. My, my dad had a lot of vices in his garage, and we just like to put things in there and smash them, just to see what, you know, they can do. And it was an impressive thing, but you've got uh, the vice as it closes, as you crank that thing, it closes, and it tightens, and it tightens, and it tightens, and it tightens. Most of the time we use that to hold things, but it can be used to crush things. It can be used to bend things. This is the Greek word for tribulation, when things tighten. And you feel the pressure. Believer, how do you feel today after the last, uh, say, five days in our country? 
Do you feel tribulation? This world pressing? No surprise. Jesus said, in this world you will find tribulation. But the gospel said two other things. Important things for us to hear. said, number one, what did he say? In me you may have peace. If you're looking for the world to give you peace, you won't find it. <laughs> it's in Christ we have our peace. It's in Christ we have our peace. That's not the only thing he said. He also said, in this world you may have tribulation, but take courage. You see those words there? Take courage. What's the final word? I have overcome the world. Tribulation is temporary. The peace from our God is eternal. You see a difference? We need messages like that. Take courage. Take courage. Don't be surprised at what the world throws at us. Take courage. Our Lord has given us peace. Do you have peace? If you're looking any source other than Him, you won't have it. And you might be very frustrated. Look to Him. There's our peace. And let's not forget, He has overcome the world. That's where we find our courage. That's the picture that we're going to present to you today, even in our study in the Old Testament on encouragement. But I needed these words too. These last couple words of chapter 16. And so let's go before the Lord in prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us clear insight. Not only into our day and age and the world around us. And how we as believers feel that pressure. It presses in all around us. And to stand for righteousness, to do what is right in a world like ours makes us quite distinct. We stand out a little more clearly. And I pray, Lord, that you might grant to us this courage that we will need, but certainly, Lord, give our hearts peace. Help us to set our minds on things above, where Christ is. Let us remember that he is the one who has overcome the world. And he is our Lord, and he is our Savior. And we rest in his hand, and nothing can pluck us out of his hand. Thank you, Lord, for these words. We need them today. We need them especially as we go into our study of encouragement. For you have called us to be encouragers, and in that we must learn how to. And you have taught much in this word about uh, how we encourage one another. And we thank you for the examples that are set before us. We have a great one today. And I pray that you challenge our hearts with what we see. Change us too in the process. Make us more like you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been studying encouragement, we are seeking to put another into a state of courage. That's encouragement. To put someone into 
a state of courage. And I've been using Old Testament examples of how that is done. Eventually we'll show you the New Testament requirements for us to keep as far as that is concerned too. But our first weekend we looked at this, we were talking about Moses and Joshua and the role that Moses had to encourage Joshua to put him into a state of courage because it was a time of dramatic transition from the, the role of Moses to the role of Joshua in leading God's people. Incredible, incredible environment there. But that was a time of encouragement, Moses to Joshua. Week after that, we found encouragement to be a little unusual in the sense that the ungodly, in this case King Darius, needed encouraged. Daniel is there, but what's special and interesting about it was that God sent an angel for the task of encouraging Darius, a pagan of all things. Most of the time we reserve encouragement within the body of Christ, don't we? We reserve it for Christians because we that's our, our little group. But in that particular case, it, it kind of went contrary to what is usual. Encouraging an unbeliever? Well, the Lord has a reason for that, and he did. Last week, we looked at another side of this, which was rather interesting. An unbeliever encouraging the believers. God used a pagan king to encourage Israel to build their temple. Now, it's kind of a funny twist, isn't it? That the outside, the unbeliever, would have to come and encourage the believer to do what they're supposed to do in God's name. But we saw that too. And that was an unusual thing too. Now, today we're going to find a, well, I'm going to just call it unselfish encouragement. A very interesting scene set before us here. Unselfish encouragement. Go back to 1 Samuel chapter 23 with me. 1 Samuel chapter 23. And just verse 16 is where we will find our verse that speaks of encouragement. We will also find our two major players in this Example in verse 16, 1 Samuel 23:16. Now Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horesh and encouraged him in God. Jonathan went to David and encouraged him in God. Jonathan went to put David into a state of courage. Now this is a very interesting situation. Let me give you the history to it. It's going to be some reading here and we're going to follow through with a a chunk of history here to get the big picture. But it's fascinating. We know quite a bit about David. We've seen a lot of flannel graph about David over the years, haven't we? Pictures of David and, and stories of David. We know him to be a shepherd. We know him to be the king of Israel. Perhaps the greatest king that they had in the list of all their kings. They're still talking about King David today. 
when you talk about history, Psalms. Most of the book of Psalms was written by David. Psalm 75 that we could identify were penned by David. He's a killer of bears, killers of lions, killers of Goliaths. We know those stories well, don't we? Especially the story of Goliath. David was a warrior. Spent most of his life in battle. David also is known negatively. (laughs) Several big stories. Certainly one, David and Bathsheba. We also know David as one who collected wives, which was against the law code. That didn't help his situation. David, toward the end of his life, took up a census that God considered evil. Incredible story that developed there. Not quite as well known as the other things. But we recognize David in a lot of different ways. He had some big projects that you might not even be aware of. The whole city of Jerusalem was David's project. It didn't even belong to them when he became king. He went and conquered that city. Turned it into the great city it is. The holy city as it's identified in some regards. But the city of Jerusalem was David's big project. The temple was David's big project. He was told he couldn't build it. But he thought, I could do everything else. He had the blueprint. He made the robes for the priests. He made the instruments that the priests were supposed to use when they sing the songs. He wrote the songs that they were to sing, that they played on those instruments in those temple worship services. He collected the money that was needed, and there was a vast amount of treasure that came in to build this temple. All these things David did, and and, um, incredible things, go back to the story of his life. Now, from our psalm study, if we wanted to do that today, uh, David was quite capable of encouraging himself in the Lord. You can't get away from that, reading through the psalms. That, that uh, For example, you're in 1 Samuel. Let me show you what David would be prone to do. In chapter 30, a few pages back from here, in chapter 30, we have a very interesting and very difficult thing that's happened. David, at this time, is on the run. He is not uh, desired among the Israelite army because Saul wants to kill him. He's not desired among any other army because he's pretty much killed them here and there. And so he's out on his own with a troop of men, about 600 or so men. And they were doing these uh, raids on Israel's enemies without letting anyone know that it was them, he was supporting Israel through these raids on these various groups. Well, he was out on one particular raid, and while he was gone, the Amalekites attacked his hometown, his little base, where they had left their wives and their children and their their baggage and everything else. And the Amalekites had attacked Ziglag and took those families hostage. Took them away took all they had. They, they took him away. And, and when David and his group of men returned back to the city, they found the city was overthrown and it was burned with fire and their families were all missing. And the grief, in chapter number 30, it says, the grief 
was so intense that his own loyal men decided, let's stone David. Would you call that a pretty rough moment? They wanted to stone him to death for it. And that's where David is in the beginning of chapter 30 here. And yet, in the midst of this, read verse 6. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. For all the people were embittered, each one because of his sons and his daughters. But, watch these words, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Isn't that a a fascinating statement in the midst of all that? He encouraged himself in the Lord. He found his strength in the Lord. Now, what he did from this moment on was that he went, led by the Lord, to attack the Amalekites and bring everybody back home. He's a happy ending. But in the midst of that, that's what I see the focus on. This kind of character of David, that even in the midst of the most horrific moment of his life, he turns to the Lord for strength. You find that true if you read the book of Psalms, don't you? How often David is there, pressed all around, and and feeling as if his life is over. And yet, this is, these are the words he'd say, You are my strong tower. You, you are my shield. You are my fortress. You are my protection. You are my strength. He goes on and on and on in those psalms. And sometimes we just read them, or we sing them, but we forget the context of a man who's broken up on this earth, but trusting in his God. A man of strength. Like I said, A man who's capable of encouraging himself in the Lord. He has proven that over and over and over in the chapters of his life. That's why I find this one example that we have here in chapter 23, or chapter, yeah, 23, verse number 16 to be so unique. So unique. Jonathan comes to David to encourage him in the Lord. What is going on here? Well, let's, let's add Jonathan to our story so we understand. It says here he's Saul's son. Saul is the king of Israel at this time. Now, think it through. It's pretty simple. Saul had a son named Jonathan. Jonathan is the oldest of his sons. Jonathan is next to be what? King. He is the next one to be king. According to the traditional way, he's in line for that kingdom. Jonathan also had a son named Mephibosheth. Another part of a story that we won't cover today, but these things we know of Jonathan. Saul's son, in line to be king, had a child named Mephibosheth, and yet he was also a very courageous warrior himself. Let me give you a picture of Jonathan so you get it. Chapter 14, back up. Chapter 14 of 1 Samuel. Starts in verse number uh, 1. Now the day came, it says, that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who was carrying his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, here's what I've pieced together historically. I believe that Jonathan 
was given the role by his father to be a leader among his troops. Oh, he had a general too. But Jonathan, being the son of the king, had a very significant place in that army. Now, he also had access to the inner circle because of the nature of his father being king and the kind of thing that Jonathan would do. Now, here's the idea that you probably have never thought of in your life. They're in the middle of fighting a Philistine army. And Jonathan gets the idea. Armor bearer, how about you and I go and attack them? He's got a whole army at his disposal. Now, you probably didn't think that this morning when you woke up. Or find one other guy and go attack a whole army. This is Jonathan's interesting perspective on things. He says, let's go. Let's go. Well, the armor bearer, of course, is going to go with him. Verse number five or four. Between the passes by which Jonathan sought to cross over to the Philistine garrison, there was a sharp crag on the one side and a sharp crag on the other side. The name of the one was Bazez and the name of the other, Shena. That's significant crags if they named them. But he says, on the one crag rose to the north opposite Mishmash and the other to the south opposite Geba. In other words, if you get down in the middle of this, there's only this direction or that direction, right? You're cutting through this kind of a thing. You don't have many rooms for escape. But this is the arrangement that Jonathan decides he's going to pass through that. He's going to cross through that. Jonathan said to the young man, verse number 6, who was carrying his armor, Come and let us cross over to the garrison of these, uh, these uncircumcised. Perhaps the Lord will work for us. For the Lord is not restrained to save by many or by few. So now you have his mentality. He doesn't think he needs a large army to do the Lord's work. He could use two people if he'd like. So the armor bearer said to him, Do all that's in your heart. Turn yourself in, and here I am with you according to your desires. So Jonathan says, Behold, we're cross over to the men and reveal ourselves to them. And if they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand in our place and not go up to them. But if they say, Come up here, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hands, and this shall be a sign to us. So he's going through this crag, and he's crawling in toward this, this garrison, and he says, they're going to see us. Matter of fact, we're going to let them see us. They're probably going, hey, here we are. Right? They come crawling up this way in order to be seen by this Philistine group. They said, now, there's only two options here. Either they're going to say, hey, wait right there, we're coming to see you. Now, does that sound like a good plan? He says, now, they may do that, so we'll stand right here until they do. But if they say, hey, come on up here, we want to talk to you, then we're going to take that as a sign that the Lord wants us to attack. All right? So that's what he's waiting for. So, when they both revealed themselves, verse 11, to the garrison of the Philistines, the Philistines said, behold, Hebrews are coming out of the holes that they've hidden themselves. So the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearers and said, Come up to us and we will tell you something. So Jonathan turns to his armor bearer and says, Come up for, after me, for the Lord has given them into the hands of Israel. Isn't that great? I love this guy. So he climbs up. The next verse. Watch the words. He climbs up on his hands and feet. He crawls his way up. 
with his armor bearer behind him. And they, the Philistines, fell before Jonathan and his armor bearer put some to death after him. The first slaughter which Jonathan and his armor bearer made was about 20 men within about half a furlough of the acre of land. And there was trembling in the camp, in the field, and among the people. Even the garrison and the raiders trembled, and the earth quaked so that it had become a great trembling. Look at this man. You impressed? Just him and his armor bearer crawling up the side of a garrison, attacking like they did, and they won that day. Now, is this the kind of David, guy, kind of guy David would like? They could have been twins. This is the kind of thing David would have done in his courage. He would have done this exact kind of thing. The kind of faith that would say, I don't need an army. I don't need the weapons. I don't need the shields. I don't need the armor. The Lord is with me and I could go into battle. He said that very publicly once when he faced Goliath. That's the kind of man that David and Jonathan were. They could have been twins in that regard. And I am sure that whatever the Lord had designed for them, they would have supported one another without any doubts, without any hesitations. Because they were loyal to each other in that. We read in Scripture that they were very deep, close friends. Very deep, close friends. Heroic faith. Undaunted courage. Self-sacrificing kind of friendship. Now, understanding these two men, I want to ask you a question, and I want you to think through, if you were there, what this moment might have been like. When did Jonathan realize that he was not going to be the next king. Jonathan, a leader among his father's army, in that inner circle certainly, he stands next to his father Saul, who became impatient one day. He was preparing for battle, and he was sure that uh, Samuel would come and offer a sacrifice so they could go into battle, and Samuel was delayed. And the army started to leave and saw in his impatience, sacrificed it without Samuel. It was the wrong thing to do. But he justified it. He thought that, well, because Samuel wasn't here, I had to do it. I had to sacrifice so the Lord would be with us. So he thought that somehow, perhaps, that this small act of disobedience would make up for it. So he did that, and Samuel appears to him. In chapter 13 of 1 Samuel, verse number 13, this is how it reads. Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. Now, do you know Samuel to be called the whispering prophet? No. (laughs) Now, Samuel, do you think if anyone was standing in the proximity of King Saul, they heard what he just said? 
What's the likelihood that Jonathan would have heard these words? I would have made your kingdom forever, but now I'm going to give it to someone else. Oh, it was identified as someone else. A man after his own heart. Now, does Jonathan still qualify? Yeah. He's a man after God's own heart. You read about his life and read about his words. I would say, okay, God's going to change things here. Saul's not going to remain king. Maybe there's still hope here that Jonathan can take that place. I'm pretty sure he must have heard those words. Chapter 15. A couple of chapters later, here in verse number 26. Saul was given the the responsibility of going to fight Agag in battle and his army. He was told not to spare anyone or anything. He was to eliminate them all, especially that wicked king, Agag. Saul went into battle and came up with his own plan. He spared Agag and the sheep and several other animals and other things that they wanted to spare. He spared them, which was a direct disobedience again to the Lord's command. And here in verse number 26, Samuel came to Saul. He says, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And Samuel turned to go, and Saul seized the edge of his robe and tore it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom from you today, and has been given to your neighbor who is better than you. If these words got out and Jonathan heard them, what did he just hear? He's not going to be king. Somebody else. A neighbor who is better than you. Now, if you were Jonathan, would you start looking around a little bit at this point? Thinking who might qualify for this position as king? Would you be suspicious? I mean, maybe even curious? Maybe you want to know? Who is the Lord going to take that kingdom away, hand it to another? By the way, in chapter number uh, 16, the very next chapter, Samuel sent to anoint a young man named David to be the next king. Now, we don't have any idea that the anointing was published in the papers or on Fox News or anything like that. We don't have records of such things. We don't know how how that news was spread, if it was spread at all. If Jonathan had heard, we don't know. We have no record of that. But we do know this, that Jonathan had invested interest in this whole scenario because it spoke of his future his future, his family, his position in that kingdom. But David's anointed. We have no other words about that until chapter number 17, and that's the one that everyone brings to the forefront, because there is Goliath standing there. Goliath threatening the nation of Israel and its army. Remember? They said, send out your champion, and I will fight with him. Goliath was a champion because he was the tallest. He was fierce. He was a warrior. Who in Israel was the champion? Who was the tallest? 
King Saul was head and shoulders above everyone else. Who had the weapons? King Saul. Matter of fact, he and his son were the only ones that really had weapons because the Philistines took the rest away. King Saul was to be the champion. Remember, they asked for a king who could go out before us into battle. And the Lord gave them King Saul. He was supposed to do that job. Where was King Saul? He was at the farthest end of that army in his tent, hiding behind all these men, afraid to go out and fight a giant that he was called to do. Instead, you know the story. Who went out? David. Not even in the army at this time. A shepherd boy. He went out to fight the the giant that day. What was the response? Of course, you know, he won the battle, right? David won the battle. You know how Israel ran to the the battlefield at that moment, chased the Philistines for miles. You know those stories. But this is the rest of it. Chapter chapter 18, starting in verse number 1. Now it came about when he had finished speaking to Saul, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. And Saul took him that day and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, including his sword and his bow and his belt. Jonathan was knit to David. It starts in chapter 19. Look at these words. Chapter 19, verse 1. Now Saul told Jonathan his son and all his servants, to put David to death. Jealousy is an ugly thing, isn't it? He was jealous of David. He told Jonathan to put him to death. But Jonathan saw his son greatly delighted in David, and Jonathan told David, saying, Saul, my father is seeking to put you to death. Now therefore, please be on your guard in the morning, and stay in a secret place and hide yourself. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak to my father about you. If I find out anything, then I will tell you. Then Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Notice these bold words. Do not let the king sin against his servant David, since he has not sinned against you, and since his deeds have been very beneficial to you. For he took his life into his hand and struck the Philistine, and the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all Israel. And you saw it and rejoiced. Why then would you sin against innocent blood by putting David to death without a cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan, and Saul vowed, As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. Now those were bold words from a son to a king who is his father. Don't sin and kill David. Now, David, as far as Saul was concerned, was a threat to his kingdom. Popularity. Big threat. He would also be a threat to Jonathan's kingdom then too, wouldn't he? Jonathan delighted in David. This is the reality. Jonathan willingly protected David. He spoke up for David. He took courage to speak up on him before his father and spoke very bold words. And in 19 verse 7, it says, Jonathan called David and David 
told him all these words. And Jonathan brought David to Saul and was in his presence as formerly. Now, you say, okay, everything's cleared up, right? No, you need to know the rest of the story. Because it didn't last long. Chapter 20, verse number 1. David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came and said to Jonathan, What have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he's seeking my life? And Jonathan says to him, Far, far from it. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. Why should my father hide this thing from me? It is not so. And David bowed again, saying, Your father knows full well that I have found favor in your sight. And he says, Do not let Jonathan know this, or he will be grieved. As truly as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there, will hardly, there is hardly a step between me and death. And Jonathan says to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. He started to see it, didn't he? Oh, my father is going to kill you. That's his plan. So they made a vow. Verse 17 of chapter 20. Jonathan made David vow again because of his love for him, because he loved him as he loved his own life. And then jump to verse 30. Jonathan goes back home. Saul meets him there. Listen to these words. Saul's anger burned against Jonathan and said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman. He's talking about his wife. Can you see that there's a need here for some counseling in that department, huh? Wow! Look what he called his own wife. You perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom will be established. Now therefore send and bring him to me. He must surely die. You see it? Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? And Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him down. So Jonathan knew that his father had decided to put David to death. Notice, he wasn't concerned about his own death. He was concerned about David's death, wasn't he? This is the kind of man Jonathan was. Time passes. And I'll give you the picture here now. I have to bring it to this chapter number 23 where we are. Time passes. David's been on the run for many years. Saul's been chasing him for many years. Jonathan's part of that army that's been out there in the wilderness trying to find David. Trying to find David. They find out he's in a place called Keleth. A little city that had a problem. And David came in to protect them. To defend that city like David liked to do. Well, word got out that David was at Keilah. And Saul brought his army around there. David inquired of the Lord and said, Lord, if I stay in Keilah, are the people of Keilah going to hand me over to Saul? And, and the Lord says, yes. He says, okay, I'm leaving. So David runs out into the wilderness to hide again. Saul knew that meant I can never find him. Once he starts hiding, I can't find him, so he gave up chase. Verse number 16. Chapter 23. Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David at Horash and encouraged him in God. Do you find this something interesting here? 
Saul cannot find him. Jonathan went right to where he was. All those years, I'm pretty sure that Jonathan knew how to find David. And he knew where to go right to his place. Notice, knowing that David's life is hanging on the balance, Jonathan went to him to encourage him. Went to encourage him. What's he say to him in verse 16? Verse 17? He says to him, Do not be afraid because of the hand of Saul, my father. He will not find you. And you will be king over Israel. And I will be next to you. And, my, and Saul, my father, knows that also. You are the next king. Do you know what impresses me about this encouragement? This embodies all that Christian love is supposed to be about. Sacrificial, one-directional, I am going to meet your needs. I am going to love you. I'm not looking for reciprocation. I'm not looking at myself. I am sacrificing myself for you. That's called agape in the New Testament. That kind of love that gives to the other, wanting the best for the other, even at the expense of my own, at the expense of, uh, of my goods, at the expense of my future, at the expense of my position, at the expense of all that is regarding me, I do not regard them as things I have to protect. I give up my position. I give up my future. I give up my life that you might have what you need. That's called love. Look at the kind of encouragement Jonathan gave to David. A man who was to take his place on the throne. That's his future. That's his position. Everything that Jonathan could have lived for in a selfish way, he gave up out of his love for David. Isn't that an incredible picture? Incredible to me to see that kind of encouragement going on. We had seen this before. One who once had all of heaven at his beck and call and stepped down and took on flesh to dwell among us. Who gave up his life. You know who I'm talking about, right? He died on a cross for us. You call that love? That's this kind of love. That's this kind of love. What kind of love does that translate into in church ministry? What would that look like in the church body? Have we been called to this kind of love? Where God says, therefore love one another as Christ has loved you? Does that sound like a half-hearted thing? Oh no. Think of the call that we're given to, to uh, minister on behalf of other people, to enhance them, to defend them. Not looking at our position, not looking at our future. Sometimes we're jealous about it. Sometimes we do whatever we can to protect it. 
Sometimes we're afraid that somebody will come along who could do it better than we can. And so we shield ourselves from such things. How often are we looking at our own interests first in ministry? I think that if Jonathan was a New Testament saint, he would be setting quite an example for us here too. How to love somebody. Not worrying about our own future, our own position. Not our own pride. But loving others more important than themselves. Now, where do we go with such a phrase? This is called putting somebody else into a state of courage. It's not selfish, is it? That's the picture I see here. Unselfish encouragement. And so ask yourself this. In the nature of what ministry you're called to here in this fellowship, in the nature that you give to other people, whether you're a teacher, you're a helper in this or that, whatever your, your place is in our fellowship, do you do it unselfishly? Are you guarding your own? Are you building your own little kingdom within this, uh, this fellowship? Or are you loving like we're called to love? Looking for that other guy to build him up, to encourage him, to put him in a place of courage. People have done that for me over the years. I treasure those people in my heart. They've given of themselves that I might serve. They've given of their their resources that I might learn. They've given of their time that I might understand this book. They've given of their love to encourage me. Has people done that for you? Have they given themselves to you? That you may be standing where you are today, ministering as you do today. Have they given to you? You know people like that? Can you be people like that? If you do, you're walking in the shoes of a man named Jonathan in a very unselfish act of encouragement. Lord, make us mindful of what we do and why we do it. When we serve you, Lord, may it be that we serve you and your people and not ourselves. Redirect our focus, Lord, if it's set on our own future, on our own position, and our own popularity. If we're, if we're building up our own little world of recognition, Lord, show us what we're doing. That we might better reflect the unselfish character of men like jo- Jonathan. And certainly the unselfish character of our own Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, transform us with this kind of love. May our ministries reflect this kind of love. May it be known that we love like our Savior does. Work in our hearts today, Lord, that we might be unselfish in our ministry of encouragement, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.